Okay, first I'd like to apologize for my voice. I ha- I've lost it, uh, and this is, it's coming back, so um, bear with me on that. Secondly, I'd want to say I'm so privileged to be here this morning. Um, I'm usually in the evening study. I love being in the, uh, with those ladies, um, but it's a privilege to be here with you this morning. Sorry. Um, and if I have to cough, I'll try to cough away from the microphone. Okay, so before we dive into our text for this week, let's look at where we've been and where we are headed. Isaiah 36 through 39 serves kind of as a bridge section, looking back to the Assyrian domination and looking forward to the Babylonian domination in the following chapters. You may have also noticed that this is a little bit different than what you're used to studying in Isaiah. It's more of a historical narrative. Um, The only other historical narrative that we've studied in Isaiah has been in chapters 7 and 8, and that was the story of King Ahaz. And so this section of Isaiah is not only a bridge, kind of connecting the Assyrian domination to the Babylonian domination, it's also bookends. It compares Ahaz, the faithless king, to Hezekiah, the mostly faithful king. Um, So before we get into chapters 36 through 39, I wanted to set the scene for you a little bit. Hezekiah had made some enemies among some powerful people in the Fertile Crescent, namely Sennacherib, king of Assyria. Why do you think Judah was so high up on his hit list? Well, for one reason... Sennacherib's predecessor had taken Israel captive 20 years earlier, and Sennacherib thought it only right for him to finish the job. Um, Secondly, Hezekiah had had the nerve to rebel against him and try to form an alliance with Egypt. But Egypt had proven to be a weak ally, and when Hezekiah realized that he was way in over his head, um, he tried to take it all back. So there are parallel passages to this portion of scripture in two other places in the Bible, uh, 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. So in 2 Kings, it records Hezekiah repenting with these words to King um, Sennacherib. He says, I have done wrong, withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. And that's chapter 18, verse 14. So according to the Assyrians' own historical records, 46 Judean cities, cities, Um, had already fallen by this time, and their people were deported. So it seems only logical to assume that Jerusalem would be next. Um, Well, I guess Sennacherib was feeling especially gracious because he only required 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold for the price of Jerusalem's freedom. A talent was about 75 pounds, so according to my calculations, that's 22,500 pounds of silver and 2,250 pounds of gold. 2 Kings records that Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house. So do you think King Sennacherib was satisfied? Do you think his wrath was assuaged? Or do you think Hezekiah had taken refuge in a false hope? Well, this is where the narrative picks up in 36 through 37. Assyria had betrayed the terms of peace and was now coming for him and Jerusalem. Today, we're going to look at first, um, on your outline, the hollow words of God's enemies and their hollow gods. And then we're going to look at the heartfelt, humble words of Hezekiah and examine how a living God responds to his people. 
Um, So we're going to jump a little bit back and forth in the chapter, so bear with me. But now let's dive into chapter 36. Enter our first antagonist, Rabshakeh. Okay, so what does that mean? This was an Assyrian title for a high officer of state, and he was sent along with a great army to Jerusalem from Lachish. Lachish is a little south of Jerusalem, and they were in the process of conquering Lachish at the time that uh, Rabshakeh showed up in Jerusalem. Now, I know very little about Star Trek, but this quote seemed very applicable to Hezekiah's situation. Maybe there's some Trekkies out there. I don't know. So this is what the bad aliens would say when they were about to take over a new species. They would say, we are the Borg. Lower your shields and surrender your ships. Your culture will adapt to service us. Resistance is futile. And so, in a sense, this is what the Assyrians were saying. We have taken over the nations around you. You are alone. You have no one to trust. Resistance is futile. The Rabshakeh speech targets first their trust and then their hope for deliverance. So he opens up his speech with this piercing question. He says, on what do you rest this trust of yours? Or in another translation, on whom do you depend? In the words of Barry Webb, author of The Message of Isaiah, he says, it is a question which the book of Isaiah forces us to ponder again and again. And with good reason, for our response to it will determine the whole shape of our lives. On whom do you depend? This was asked of Hezekiah, and it is asked of us today. On whom do we depend? Well, the Rabshakeh was evidently prepared for their answer because then he proceeds to scornfully demean Hezekiah for trusting in Egypt. And he warns the people against trusting in the Lord, their God. Now, why would he say that? Why would he take the stance that the God of Israel had abandoned them? Well, after Hezekiah had removed all the high places, this happened earlier on in his reign, the people of Judah weren't too sure that this was the right thing to do. They had loved their idols, and he had torn them down. And the Rabshakeh was playing on the fears of the people that maybe Hezekiah didn't really know what he was doing. Maybe the Lord had removed himself when Hezekiah removed the high places. Maybe they had placed their trust in the wrong person. Placing these seeds of doubts in the hearts of the people is all part of the Rabshakeh's plan. So after he targets their faith, he then begins, um, he targets their trust. He begins to taunt them in verse 8, saying, Even if we provide you with all the horses for your battle, you wouldn't even have enough men to ride them. And here comes perhaps the most convincing part of his argument. The Assyrians were sent by the very Lord they worshipped to destroy them. Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize and plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. That's from Isaiah 10, if you remember, verses 5 and 6. So the Assyrians had evidently done their homework. Um, Kudos to their intelligence analysts. How could they use God's own words against them? But see, herein lies the rub. Satan is an expert at using the truth against us by just twisting it a little bit to serve his purposes. The speech from the mouth of the Rabshakeh hits so close to home 
because so much of it was true. Egypt wasn't able to deliver them. They didn't have enough men to defend themselves. And perhaps the most cutting of all, God had used Assyria as the rod of his wrath. But be on guard. Take heart. The basic premise of his entire speech is false. God had not abandoned his people. Trusting him was not futile. In Webb's words, he says, It is always Satan's way to make us think that God has abandoned us and to use logic woven from half-truths to convince us of it. The truth is that the Lord had brought Judah to the end of her own resources so that she might learn to trust him utterly. But he had not abandoned her and would not abandon her. Praise God. God had not abandoned Judah, and God does not abandon us today. So then um, deliverance is targeted. After the Rabshakeh finishes this cunning speech, attacking their trust, the Judean leaders ask him ever so politely to speak in a language the men on the wall couldn't understand. And is the Rabshakeh obliging? No. He responds by raising his voice in the same language and speaking directly to the very men in question. He is bold. He is confident. He is dead wrong. He, here he makes his fatal error. He challenges the ability of Yahweh to deliver. Does he know of whom he speaks? Does he not know that Yahweh is the great deliverer? This is who our God is. He's our deliverer. He has been in the business of delivering his people since the first promise of a Savior in the garden. He has delivered his people over and over from their sin, from their sorrow, from their suffering. And do you think he will stand by and let this accuser speak of him so? Well, this is a spoiler alert, so if you don't want to know the end of the story, close your ears. God promises in the verse 35 of chapter 37... I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. So he will not let this accuser, the Rabshakeh, defame his name, just as he will not let the great accuser, Satan himself, stand in the final day and accuse his people. Um, So now we move on to the king's message. So this is the Rabshakeh's um, speech, and now we we skip part of... um, 36 and move to the king's message. And here faith is targeted. So King Sennacherib renewed his threats against Jerusalem in verses 10 through 13 by attacking Hezekiah's faith in verse 10, declaring the invincibility of Assyria over the nations in verse 11 and over their gods in verse 12, and finally reminding them of the risk to kings in opposing him in verse 13. So he's very bold in his message. But these are all hollow threats because he worships a hollow God and not the God who is sovereign over kings and kingdoms. So Sennacherib is on trial in verses 22 through 29. He's found guilty for mocking the Holy One of Israel and for boasting in his own strength. The Lord then proceeds in the next verses to reveal his character. It is his plans which come to pass. Come to pass. It is his will that shall be done, and it is his words that will prevail. What he planned from days of old, he now brings to pass. Um, the last verses in this chapter of 37, verses 36 through 38, 
reveal how God carries out his plan with a single stroke of his power. We're left with a picture of Sennacherib and his God weighed in the balances and found wanting. Sennacherib met his death in the house of Nisroch, a hollow god of wood and stone who cannot hear the hollow prayers of his worshipers. So now that we've looked at the hollow words of King Sennacherib and the Rabshakeh against Hezekiah and his God, let's look at King Hezekiah's words and how a living God responds to his people. So after Rabshakeh targets Hezekiah's trust and tries to make the people doubt and God's ability to deliver them, how is Hezekiah going to respond? Well, as he should. Um, In verses 1 through 4 of chapter 37, he went into the house of the Lord to pray, and he sent a message to Isaiah asking him to pray as well. Let's look briefly at Hezekiah's message because it gives us a few clues about where his heart is. So when he says that this is a day of rebuke in verse 3, he's saying that the troubles that have come upon him and his people are deserved. Hezekiah had not acted in faith when he tried to ally with Egypt. He had not consulted God's prophet when he had desperately tried to bargain with King Sennacherib. When he mentions disgrace, he is thinking of the public shame that followed. And when he mentions that children have come to the point of birth without the strength to bring them forth, he is declaring that all the preparations that he has made have been in vain without the help from the Lord. Hezekiah had made all the preparations that a good king should, but these were hopeless against such an overwhelming presence such as Assyria. He knew he needed the Lord to fight for them or resistance would be futile. So, um, lest Isaiah forget, Hezekiah reminds him in verse 4 of 37 of how the Rabshakeh had mocked the living God. That was his fatal error. We see next Isaiah's response, his immediate message for the king. And what does this message say? It says not to be afraid of the young men in verse 6. Do you get the sense that God is in control here? The mightiest power on the earth at the time is reduced to mere boys in God's eyes. God will act. He reveals his plan to Hezekiah in the next verse, and his plans will come to pass. So Hezekiah's response to the next threat that comes his way through the king's messengers in verse 10 through 13 reveals a man that now knows his way about in the country of faith. He responds by returning to the house of the Lord. This time there is no tearing of the robes. There is no panic. There is only a quiet trust in the Lord. Hezekiah's prayer in verses 16 through 20 begins and ends with the declaration that Lord Yahweh alone is God. What are the threats of a human king compared to the strength of an eternal God? How can you compare this living God with the gods of the nations? They are are only hollow gods made of wood and stone. This prayer doesn't change Hezekiah's problems, but it does change his perspective. The cry for deliverance becomes a cry that God's kingdom may come and his will be done. And does the Lord hear the prayer? Yes, the Lord's response to his prayer seems to be immediate. He begins with, because you prayed to me. This is a great mystery of prayer. 
The God who is sovereign over the course of history chooses to work through the power of prayer. How gracious of our God to involve us in his work by giving us the privilege of prayer. Um, After he declares what will happen, um, King Sennacherib, what, what will happen to King Sennacherib, he backs up this word with a sign in verse 30 to 32. And he says, The house of Judah shall take root downward, which represents her security, and bear fruit upward, which represents her prosperity. So the last word he has for the king of Assyria is that he will not touch the city of God, which God himself defends, for he is the great deliverer, and resistance to him is futile. Whereas King Sennacherib had met his death in the house of Nisroch, Hezekiah had found true security in the house of the living God who heard his prayer. So the next section of Isaiah, sections 38 through 39, is a bit of a step back in time. This event likely took place 10 to 15 years before the events in 36 and 37. And so why do you think Isaiah uh, chose to tell the story of the Assyrian invasion before the story of his sickness and recovery? Well, as I stated in the beginning, these chapters are a bridge directing our next step towards um, Judah's enemy, the Babylonians. Um, So chapter 38 begins with the statement that Hezekiah was sick and to the point of death. So he's weak. He's vulnerable. He's weeping bitterly, the scripture says. This is a much different picture than the man in previous chapters who was confident in God in the face of a national crisis. But this is more of a personal crisis in Hezekiah's life. And we see a very personal response. When Isaiah hands him a death sentence, he turns his face to the wall and prays to the Lord. He is turning to the Lord, but his prayer sounds a little bit more like a bargain. Um, He says, here are all the good things I've done for you. Now, what are you going to do for me? So we're all tempted to think like that. But praise be to God. His willingness to hear our prayers and respond doesn't depend on human faithfulness, but divine faithfulness. So um, God hears and responds his plea for help. Um, And he sends his message through Isaiah that he has heard his cry and he has seen his tears. This makes me think of another great king who cries to God when his enemies seem too strong for him. David says in Psalm 56, You have kept count of my tossing. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. Believer, he has kept track of your every toss and turn through the sleepless nights. Each tear is entered in his ledger. Each ache is written in his book. And he is for you. Isn't that enough? Take comfort on those sleepless nights to know that if God is for you, Who can be against you? So God graciously promises to add 15 years to Hezekiah's life in verse 5. And we're in chapter 38. Right? But he doesn't stop there. He promises deliverance out of the hand of the king of Assyria. Ah, so this is how Hezekiah was so um, confident 
in the presence of such strong enemy in the previous chapters. He had this promise of God's deliverance on which to cling. When Hezekiah recovers from his illness, he writes a beautiful prayer of praise to the Lord, his deliverer. Now, we're only going to briefly look at this prayer. Um, We're going to look at verse 17 alone of the prayer um, and what it teaches us on suffering. So there was a purpose in his suffering, and there is a purpose in our suffering today. Um, We see first in um, verse 17 that suffering has a personal benefit. He He says, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness. Secondly, we see in verse 17 that suffering gives us a special awareness of the Lord's love. He says, but in love you have delivered my life. And lastly, we see that this suffering had brought him to a new understanding of the forgiveness of sin. He says, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. When I think of someone who has endured great suffering, I think of Johnny Erickson Tata who as a teenager suffered a diving accident that rendered her quadriplegic. On the 50-year anniversary of her accident, she was interviewed by Christianity Today. When she was asked how she feels as she reflects back over the past 50 years, here was her response. Just the other day, as I was reading 1 Peter 5.10, where Peter says, After you have suffered a little while, The God of all grace will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Honestly, I'm amazed that the last 50 years feel only like a little while. Maybe God does that when we finally do love Jesus more, when we finally do follow him more closely. Maybe he erases all the horror, all the despair, all the depression of the past when we learn how to trust God. He pushes into the background all the terrible times of anguish, and he brings forward the highlights, the moments of hope, peace, and growth. As I look back over 50 years, I just see God at work. That's pretty exciting. So God doesn't always choose to heal our sufferings. Sometimes he calls us to walk through them, trusting that he is enough. And so briefly... Let's look at Hezekiah's future. God did choose to heal Hezekiah from sickness, and he did choose to deliver Jerusalem from their enemies. But this deliverance was only temporary, as we see in verses 5 to 7 of chapter 39. Hezekiah would die 15 years later. And this ally, who was shown all that was in Hezekiah's storehouses, would become their enemy a little over a hundred years later. Babylon would not forget what they saw, and they would return to destroy Jerusalem and carry away not only all that was in Hezekiah's house, but his own sons as well. But take heart, church. God has made a way through the rubble and destruction and has sent his own son to be our deliverer. And our deliverance from sin, sorrow, and death is not temporary. It is eternal. As Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 15, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ.
So let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the great deliverer. We thank you that when we depend upon you, we can trust you to um, take care of us. We can trust you to defend us. We can trust you to work for our good. And so, Lord, we thank you this day um, of what you have to teach us through your word. And we ask you, O Lord, to help us to depend upon you and to look forward to the day that all of our sin and sorrow and suffering will be over, will be no more. Praise be to God. Amen.